Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer, and today we're celebrating and learning about Indigenous Peoples Day. Many states across the nation are celebrating Columbus Day, but a growing number have done away with that celebration and instead celebrate Indigenous histories and presence today. For this episode, I spoke with Bonnie Brown, coordinator of WVU's Native Studies program. Brown talks about the legacy of genocide sparked by Columbus's arrival in North America. Then, I spoke with Angela Arnett Garner from the Legislative Committee of the Kentucky Native American Heritage Commission. Garner talks about her work organizing across the state, encouraging towns and counties to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. Well, my name is Bonnie Brown, and I'm the coordinator of the Native American Studies program at West Virginia University. Our program offers an academic minor in Native American Studies, and we're part of the Everly College of Arts and Sciences here at WVU. And I've been coordinator since July of 2005, and prior to that, I I worked uh, with the um, the other folks in Native American Studies and the previous uh, coordinator on programming and consulting and so on. I teach Introduction to Native American Studies and certain upper division special topics classes like treaties, nation to nation, uh, sovereign tribal nations, um, another course called In the Courts of the Conqueror that was based on a book by the renowned Native rights attorney, Walter Echohawk, a Pawnee gentleman who's very highly respected. So um, uh, I also oversee the uh, part-time faculty who teach additional classes for us. We're a small program, but we have a a wide reach. Great. Um, So so Columbus Day is a national holiday commemorating the Mm -hmm. landing of Christopher Columbus um, in North America. But for indigenous communities across the U.S., Columbus isn't really seen as this this hero that he's often uh, depicted to be in for example, the public schools that I went to. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about Columbus's legacy and what some of the sort of romanticized stories that we hear about him sure. leave out. Yes, I can I can address that from my own reading and from discussions with Native leaders and from wonderful teachers and very wise people, Indigenous leaders like Oren Lyons, who's a faith keeper of the Onondaga Nation of the Iroquois Haudenosaunee people. Um, he is the United Nations representative for North American Indigenous peoples. Um, and also uh, Walter Echohawk, uh, Suzanne Harjo, a Native rights activist, who has won the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom and so on. All of the Native people that I meet with from time to time, I attend the National Congress of American Indians each year. Um, All of these wonderful Native people have informed my understanding of uh, the importance of, of taking apart and unpacking the Columbus Day myth a little bit, or the Columbus as discoverer of America, that myth that is, that is, sort of memorialized and celebrated in in the annual Columbus Day events. So first of all, thanks to all of the indigenous people who have taught me and informed me over the years as a non-native person. 
So Columbus was not the first European to um, arrive in the New World or to sail in waters near what we now consider North America or Central America. Uh, there were Norse settlements um, up in the far northeast, um, Nova Scotia and so on, um, settlements that did not become permanent settlements, but nonetheless people from Europe had visited there and uh, form some relationships to some extent with the native people that they encountered and met. Um, other people, there, you know, there's some scholars who believe that there were uh, British fishing expeditions and so on that sailed in the, the waters on the northeast coast of what is now the United States and, and southeastern Canada and so on. So one of the biggest problems, however, is when we when we listen to that statement, Columbus discovered America, and it's still taught in many, many school settings to young children. Columbus discovered America. You could easily argue that, that that's impossible because we know that many millions of indigenous people were living in the Americas, even in, the, in North America. Population estimates easily range from 18 to 30 million people. So using simple terminology like Columbus discovered America it heads us down the wrong path immediately. And by the wrong path, I mean an inaccurate representation of history. So it's estimated that in the Americas, there may have been as many as a thousand distinct native groups, a thousand distinct native languages. Some of those languages were from the same overall language family, some were dialects, but a thousand distinct languages. It's very hard to say that an expedition of Europeans arriving uh, to this continent to the, in the Western Hemisphere, arriving here in 1492, discovers America. So let's just pick that apart a little bit and, and, and give your audience something to think about there. How do you discover something? We usually attribute the the idea that something is brand new and has been discovered and revealed for the first time. So if we want to say that Columbus discovered America for Spain, you could make that argument. Uh, but if you say that Columbus discovered America overall, that's just patently false. Millions of people were living here. They had established societies. They had governments. They had millennia worth of um, traditional practices, healing rituals, medicines, uh, social constructs, kinship laws, and so on that date back many thousands of years. Um, it's easily estimated from the archaeological record alone that indigenous peoples were living on this continent in the, and in the Western Hemisphere, both, both South America and North America and each continent, um, easily 20,000 years ago. So when we think about Columbus having landed here a little bit more than 500 years ago, it's just really inaccurate and shows a very narrow um, interpretation of the, the notion of discovering something. So he discovered it for Spain. And he tends to be celebrated, I think, primarily by Italian-Americans. I think it's important to know that Columbus Day was not universally celebrated around the country. Um, I think it became an official federal holiday in 1937. Um, 
So it's not really that old as in terms of uh, federal holidays in comparison to other holidays like the 4th of July and so on. Um, so that's, that's important. Let's just establish that right off the bat. Now, the other thing that happens is uh, once Columbus lands here and realizes there are all of these native people here and they appear to not be baptized Christians, uh, he, he immediately takes some of these native people back to Europe almost as cargo. He enslaves native people. Uh, native people are um, subjected to diseases to which they have no immunity right off the bat. From, from the immediate landing of, of Columbus's um, uh, crew. So he takes people back to Europe, and it becomes evident that, that although there weren't vast trading centers right there along the shores of the islands where he landed, the ideas are, are just going off like fireworks <laughs> in his mind. He sails back to Europe, and uh, Ferdinand and Isabella are granted this sort of exclusivity um, by the Pope in the Papal Bull of 1493, part of the Doctrine of Discovery uh, philosophy or, or doctrine, actually, that anything he can claim where people are not already Christianized, baptized Christian practitioners, that can be claimed for Spain. So anything he encounters essentially in the Western Hemisphere can be claimed for Spain. None of those people are seen to have any rights of nationhood. They're barely seen to have human rights, civil rights, things that we regard today with um, great esteem. And so people become enslaved. Um, there's a, eventually, over time, the move to baptize as many of these heathen, pagan, barbarian people as possible. And those are really negative caricatures of the indigenous people who lived here. Um, there's a tendency to degrade the enemy with all sorts of terms that have specifically negative connotations. They're cannibals, they're barbarians, they're heathens, they're pagans. And yet the atrocities that are committed in the 500 years since the landing of Columbus toward indigenous peoples are certainly horrific and barbaric, and so on. And if we look at something like the criteria established by the United Nations, um, the UN Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide, everything is laid out there. The criteria for establishing the legal definition of genocide, and each one of those can receive a check mark. If we go down the list of of European relations and oppression of Native peoples in the Americas even in the United States. So if we just break it down even further to the United States toward the people living, the indigenous people living in the land that we now call the United States, it's very clear you can check off each criteria and say that, yes, um, these activities meet the legal definition of genocide as established after World War II by the United Nations. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the intense population decreases that happened mm -hmm. and and then sort of maybe some some maybe we could move move forward in history a bit from sure. from Columbus sure okay um, absolutely so if we want to talk just about the 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 terrible negative impact on the population of indigenous peoples in in what is now the United States we can look at those uh 
estimates at the point of contact with the capital C being the time that Columbus lands in the Americas. If we look at 1,500, one generally agreed upon population figure is 10 million. And there's a lot of disagreement about that, by the way. But if we if we look at that one figure of an estimate of 10 million people, it's a conservative estimate, and it's it's really in the middle of some modern estimates that range up to easily up to 18 million or more. Outlier estimates go up. I think I've seen as high as 30 million people. So if we start at 1,500 and we have 10 million native people living in what is now the United States, we can move ahead to the next big estimate that has been put out there, and and that estimate drops down to 600,000 by the year 1800, 600,000. If we continue to move forward through the 1800s, where manifest destiny takes hold as an, an important ideal to Americans of conquering the West and westward expansion. Lewis and Clark have made their journey to the Pacific Northwest and reported back that they've encountered numerous uh, Native American nations, tribes, and people. Um, that number just continues to fall as the demand on the part of European Americans increases. It becomes almost an insatiable lust for more land, more resources. Lewis and Clark have reported back on the vast forests, the rushing streams, the abundance of wild game and fish and salmon, and you know all of the things that that people could exploit for wealth. Uh, to become property owners, and so on. So all these things are happening. Native people are being reservationized. The tribes are are being, um, through some arm twisting and so on, they're being forced to sign treaties. They're put between a rock and a hard place, to, to use an old cliche. And that's not to say that treaty negotiators on the part of the tribes were not savvy people. Many of them were and negotiated long and hard for the optimal conditions for their people. But overall, the power rested with the United States. And that's because of superior weaponry. It's because of uh, growing numbers of European or white Americans encroaching into native land. The government sanctioned policies of bounty hunting, so another clear example of a genocidal practice, hunting people, massacring people, turning in their scalps, ears, heads for cash bounty. This happened to uh, this happened all over, but in one of the places where it was a, a very common practice was after gold was discovered in 1848 in California and the gold rush takes off. California was a highly populated um, region, many, many Native tribes. Even today, we have about 107, I think at last count, 107 federally recognized Native American tribes in California, Uh, many different languages spoken, many different groups in California. And so when the gold rush occurs, and the prospectors and the others who are hoping to get rich push to California and they see the verdant fertile valleys that are perfect for agriculture and there are forests and there's shoreline for navigation and fishing and so on. It becomes a very desirable place. And the problem, there are so many Native people there. And the solution, 
it's not going to be as easy, not that it was easy, but it's not going to be as matter of fact to remove all those California Indians from California and force them somewhere else. When we think about Appalachia and especially uh, southern Appalachia and the southeastern United States, we often hear about and read about and understand the forced removal of the five civilized tribes, the Cherokee, Choctaw, Creek, Chickasaw, and Seminole, the, the five main tribes, and numerous other smaller tribes, too numerous to mention. When they are forcefully removed west out to Indian Territory, what is now Oklahoma, for all practical purposes, all the state of Oklahoma, they were forcefully removed after Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act in 1830. So they're, they're marched, out, marched out there after gold is discovered in Georgia. So there's always this lust for money and the lust for land and the lust for control. And with that comes the oppression of the original inhabitants of the land. I wouldn't say owners of the land, because in the way that Europeans conceive of owning land, um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put that I wouldn't make an analogy to how Native people, especially traditional-minded Native people, view land. There are ancestral homelands, ancestral territories. Um, you know what we might think of as. Uh, empires of towns, villages, and cities within uh, a, a larger native tribes and so on, chiefdoms, those sorts of things. So I don't want to get too far off track here, but I'm, I'm kind of describing this westward expansion and taking over land that had been home to native people for many thousands of years, a term that you'll hear from native people telling the story of, of their own tribe's history is since time immemorial, meaning... Since as long ago, as far back in history as anyone can remember, as we've been taught, we've been here since time immemorial. And so those southeastern tribes are removed in the 1830s. That large-scale removal process where people are made refugees and, and have the forced removal from their homes in the southeast is followed up within a, a decade or so of uh, the gold rush. Only here, there's just, I guess it's not expedient enough to start thinking about removing Native people. And so genocidal policies that included cash payments for bounty hunting of Native people takes hold. Um, this is explained very well in the story of a man who came to be called Ishii, the last Yahi. And you can watch the film Ishii, the last Yahi. There's a book called Ishii, the last wild Indian, where essentially his tribe had been decimated. And it's the story of a single man believed to be the last person to speak his language and to represent his specific tribe uh, comes out of the wilderness and is, is then, then has interactions with the early anthropologist Alfred Kroeber and others. But in California, this, these genocidal acts were carried out over the objections of some people, some fair-minded people who felt this is really wrong to be murdering other human beings for the sake of taking land that is rightfully theirs. So the pebble that dropped in the pond when Columbus lands is the ripples that, that emanate from that pebble being dropped in the pond are still being felt today. 500 years of colonization, and to a large extent, 500 years of oppression of Native people. 
where they have not had the same full human rights and civil rights acknowledged as white Americans. So when people question, should we be celebrating Columbus Day, I guess that's a question each individual can answer. Do we want to celebrate someone who is purported to have discovered America when he did not discover America? Do we want to celebrate someone who thought that he had arrived in India and was going to partake in the spice trade and look for other riches and so on, and he did not? Do we want to celebrate someone whose, I guess, early efforts at colonization and establishing trade and and gaining wealth um, at the expense of Native people, some of them paid with their lives or their health or their freedom, certainly, do we want to celebrate that? Or do we want to take a step back as a more enlightened nation of people, enlightened communities of people, and and think about what a difference it might make in our in the harmony in this country, to achieve some harmony in this country, and to perpetuate a, a better understanding, a more accurate understanding, a more accurate portrayal of history, to spend some time celebrating Indigenous People's Day or Indigenous People's Month. November is is typically declared um, uh, Native American and Alaska Native Heritage Month, and that's uh, that's a that's done by resolution. It's it's signed by the president each year. You know, presumably a president could decide they're not going to do that, and and people may continue to celebrate it anyway. But uh, that's something that continues to happen. But setting aside that second Monday in October to quote unquote celebrate Columbus Day is something I think we need to take a step back from and really give some very deep thoughtful meditation to. Um, Do we want to celebrate something that didn't happen? Do we want to commemorate the survival and the resilience of Native people, uh, the descendant peoples who who made it to this 21st century despite all of the genocidal activities? That seems to me personally to be a much worthier cause. And that's not to detract from the ethnic pride that Italian-Americans may feel because of the sacrifices of their own people who immigrated to the United States and set up new lives and and um, bore children and saw grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on, raised and educated and, and prospering and so on, is not to take away from another group's ethnic pride, but it is to shine a spotlight on a very important part of our history as a nation that is frequently swept under the rug, misunderstood, not acknowledged at all, and so on. So if we think about the the decline in the indigenous population of the United States, the native population of the United States from the point of contact, we're an estimate of around 10 million people, minimally, 10 million indigenous people were living in the United States. That number drops down precipitously from disease, very widespread disease to which indigenous people here had no immunity, um, diseases that their medicine people, their indigenous pharmacists and so on could not address. 
that population drops down to an estimated 228,000 at its low point in 1890. And that's according to the U.S. Census, 228,000. So by then, we've had widespread genocidal actions. We've had massacres of large numbers of Native people at, you know, sometimes these massacres are portrayed as war, like the the war at Wounded Knee or the Battle of Wounded Knee. But if, again, if we're willing to look honestly at history and examine the available sources and accept the history of Native people in their own words, then we know that was a massacre at Wounded Knee, just as it was at Sand Creek with the Cheyenne and as it was with the Yahi in California and in many other places. These were not wars where armed soldiers representing the two sides meet in battle on an open field, you know, to use that old scenario, that kind of cliche scenario. Instead, these are massacres where unarmed Native people are attacked by people, soldiers, using cannons, using rifles, uh, all sorts of weaponry that led to the slaughter of Native people. So if we look at something like something as tragic as the Sand Creek Massacre in southeastern Colorado, that's a case where the Cheyenne people had been given clearance to camp where they were camping along Sand Creek. They waved a white flag. They had an American flag, and yet they were essentially mowed down, to use a coarse term, by the cavalry. So all of these sorts of things continued to layer uh, the harm and the decimation of, of Native peoples and reduce the population. It only starts to pick up and fluctuates a little bit as we get more into the 1900s. You know, treaties, there's no more treaty making by this time. Um, Some tribes are beginning to uh, be recognized formally by the government as federally recognized tribes and and ascribed uh, rights that had not previously been ascribed to them as they should have been. Uh, By 1924, the American Indian Citizenship Act is passed. That's following World War I, when an estimated 10 to 12,000 Native American men served in the U.S. military to defend the U.S. in World War I. Uh, So 1924 comes about with with, uh, the American Indian Citizenship Act. And then things begin to um, move along, move forward to where we are today. We have the American Indian Civil Rights Legislation of the 1960s, the American Indian Movement, um, highlighting the need to respect indigenous rights and so on. So I do feel that there is there is hope and that, that we're moving forward. Um, there are There's a record number of Native Americans running for office this year in the United States, um, both in state legislatures as well as um, at the federal level. And I think that's really encouraging that um, so much is happening to strengthen the representation of Native people and, and pull them away from... Um, near invisibility in the minds of many Americans. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. We just heard Bonnie Brown, 
coordinator of WVU's Native Studies program, speaking about the legacy of genocide sparked by Columbus's arrival in North America. Next, we hear from Angela Arnett Garner of the Legislative Committee from the Kentucky Native American Heritage Commission. Garner talks about her work organizing across the state to encourage towns and cities to pass proclamations which recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. Okay, um, I'm Angela Arnett Garner, and um, I'm an organizer. Uh, I've uh, fought for Native American causes uh, for years now, and um, I've worked, uh, I served four years under Governor Bashir as a commissioner for the Native American, Kentucky Native American Heritage Commission in Frankfurt. And uh, so I work for an organizer now for, uh, as the uh, chair of the legislative committee for uh, Kentucky Indigenous Peoples. Great. And could you tell us a little bit about um, the Kentucky Native American Heritage Commission and for the legislative um, branch that you just mentioned? Okay, so uh, the Kentucky Native American Heritage Commission was um, uh, was formed in 1996, and um, it, it's basically a um, an agency that helps preserve um, Native American landmarks, um, you know, like the Wycliffe Mounds and the Choctaw Academy and different places like that, or if people discover a uh, archaeological site on their property. Um, they they help connect uh, families with the right uh, information and the right resources so that things can be uh, processed in a way that's um, uh, that, that's going to preserve um, you know be sensitive to the traditions and the culture and preserving artifacts. Uh, we also act as a clearinghouse of information. Um, uh, any type of information about Native American history and culture, and we um, uh, hire educators uh, that uh, speak with uh, the public school system and other agencies and organizations that um, to to help educate people about Kentucky uh, Native American history and culture, and um, you know, and and um, Native American history in general. Great. And then and then your current role, can you talk more about that? Well, so uh, last year, before my term expired as commissioner, um, I urged uh, Stanford City Council to pass the first uh, Indigenous People's Day Proclamation in Kentucky. Uh, they did so on last September 19th, and so I was organizer for the first uh, celebration. And uh, this year I have... Uh, it's been my job to canvass the state and talk with mayors and city councils across Kentucky uh, and uh, urge them to do the same uh, to uh, consider passing proclamations in their respective cities. So, so far, uh, I have uh, helped pass 23 proclamations, that's besides Stanford, uh, 23 proclamations in 23 cities, and to my knowledge, that's more than any other state that in uh, in the United States since the movement began, the Indigenous People Movement uh, uh, in 1992. Wow. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this national push to get Indigenous Peoples Day recognized. 
Well, um, people have gone about this in a variety of different ways. Some states have um, elected to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, Indigenous Peoples Day is basically a celebration of uh, Native culture and uh, and history, and you usually have a combination of speakers and music. Sometimes you'll hear about uh, a parade. Uh, it, it's really celebrated in a variety of ways. There's no really you know, any rules uh, for the celebration. Um, and uh, and then there's some states also that uh, elect to not replace Columbus Day, but to uh, also incorporate Indigenous Peoples Day uh, in the you know the festivities on the same day as Columbus Day. And and uh, uh, all of the proclamations that have been passed here in Kentucky, it, it's really both Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day is being celebrated side by side. And I consider it my first mission to, you know, really encourage people to, um, um, you know, promote and recognize the rich history that we already have here in Kentucky. And, um, you know, Native Americans existed here in Kentucky um, for at least 12,000 years. And there's a common myth associated with Kentucky that it was just a hunting ground, and that is just not true. Um, there's... Um, a um, volumes of archaeological data that um, that makes it obvious that Native Americans of different tribes existed here for twelve thousand years, and um, um, the movement began in California and Berkeley in nineteen ninety two, and that was the first city council that passed it. And since then, there's twenty some um, uh, states nationwide that have passed. Uh, Proclamation cities within their borders have passed proclamations, and then 50-some cities um, have passed proclamations nationwide. And so, uh, let's see. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, Stanford, Kentucky's first, the first celebration in the state that happened last year. If you could sort of describe how that event came together and what it included. Okay. Um well, at the time I was commissioner, and uh, we had a, a meeting, um, and a gentleman, a colleague of mine, brought it up that it would be nice if we could um, somehow bring Indigenous Peoples Day to Kentucky, but there were kind of lingering doubts that we might do so because uh, it had already been tried in in uh, Cincinnati, and uh, I believe twice, and it did not. Uh, succeed. And so he asked, was, was there any cities that anybody knew about uh, in Kentucky that might consider it? And uh, so I uh, recommended Sanford because um, I've been a resident here since 2007, and I had uh, hosted two previous uh, Native American-themed events. I had uh, uh, researched and written uh, one of these, uh, you know, official Kentucky um, highway markers, historical markers, uh, specifically about uh, uh, Cherokees in this region. And um, so we had an unveiling ceremony, and I recruited two-time Grammy winner Rita Coolidge to come and, and help me unveil the sign, and and kind of help call attention to the, you know, the much-needed 
um, a message of um, encouraging people to be aware of Kentucky history and Native American history and so on. So she came in in uh, the fall of, of uh, 2013, and then in the following year, I hosted uh, world-renowned artist Donald Van. Uh, he's a Cherokee uh, national treasure, and um, uh, I hosted him for the first exhibit of its kind anywhere in Stanford or, or in this region. And so it was really well-received in Stanford, and um, uh, people... Uh, were eager to uh, to help raise funds for the events, and uh, they were well attended. And so I spoke up and I said, you know, I believe that we can get Indigenous People Day passed in Stanford. And so they sent me to talk with the mayor and uh, the city council. And long story short, then on September uh, 19th, we passed it. And it wasn't without uh, opposition. There were a few people, not many, uh, that spoke out against it, but uh, there were way more people. Um, the majority of the people there, by far, were in favor of of the passage of the proclamation, and they they really were aware that you know Sanford could make history. You know, it's the second oldest town in the state of Kentucky, and um, that really we had a very rare opportunity to make history and to send the message across the state that here in Kentucky, we can do progressive things. We can uh, do good things for our state and, um, and, and, you know, and celebrate the resources that we have here. So that's what we did. And then I organized the celebration and uh, we don't have a lot of uh, community centers and so forth in Stanford, but uh, it was the perfect, really the perfect, uh, venue for the event. I chose the uh, the Victorian uh, courthouse with the opera windows and the uh, massive red brick columns in downtown on Main Street. And, and actually, my uh, Cherokee's historical marker is right outside on the courthouse lawn. And I thought, you know, what better place to try to bring at least some measure of justice for this cause than to host the event in a courthouse. So that's exactly what we did, and we had a variety of Native American um, uh, uh, performers. We had vocalists, flute players, drummers, uh, you know, chanters, um, and it was really moving. There were a lot of people that came up after. It was a standing room only event, and uh, there were people that came up and acknowledged that this was their first opportunity to be exposed to Native American music and that they were really moved by it. And um, it, I think, uh, connected a lot of people, brought people together, and uh, people felt the moment. It was almost surreal. Um, you could feel that it was a historic moment for the, the city and the state. And um, so it was covered by all of the major news affiliates in Lexington and KET's Kentucky Life um, came out. Doug Flynn and his crew came out and did a story on it. And uh, and it was picked up by the AP and uh, was uh, featured in newspapers and uh, TV articles across the United States, including U.S. News and World Report. Wow. That's great. That's really great. 
I wonder if you could talk about sort of what personally motivates you um, to to get involved in this cause and and also why you think it's important that that we recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. Well, uh, all, you know, personally, um, I'm, um, I was, you know, raised from a small child to believe in fighting for social justice causes and, um, especially civil rights. And, um, you know, it's something that I feel very strongly about and very, and it's my passion. And, uh, I, I think it's important because it's, it's important to recognize uh, the Native uh, Native American community that we have that so often overlooked, and you'll know, hear people say, "Well, you know, I don't. There must not be any many Native Americans left because I, I never see them." But just right here in Kentucky, uh, according to census and other data we have, that there's at least thirty thousand Native Americans that live in Kentucky, representing two hundred tribes. And uh, there is a thriving uh, com- Native community here in the state and a thriving powwow circuit and festival circuit also. Uh, I just came from the, the Richmond powwow this past weekend, uh, September 28th through the 30th, where they uh, recognized Indigenous People's Day for the first time over there in Richmond and Berea. Those are two of the uh, uh, 23 cities that uh, were passed uh, this year. And um, uh, so I, I think it's really important to recognize the, the community that exists here and to try to debunk some of the myths that Native Americans never existed in Kentucky because they did for at least 12,000 years. Um, and it's important to um, also recognize, uh, you know, our rich history and culture here and um, and contributions of Native Americans to this country, you know, um, nationwide. Yeah, great. Um, so I understand that you are a part of organizing the first ever Indigenous Peoples Day celebration in Louisville this year, and I, I wonder what you could tell us about that event. Well, yes, I am the organizer. Um, I went up uh, uh, in... February, I started uh, trying to reach out to the mayor's office, and we met several times, and I, I told them what uh, we were able to accomplish in Stanford, um, and, um, um, you know, and what an important celebration it could mean to Louisville, because uh, Louisville's the largest city in Kentucky, and they could be, you know, the largest city to pass indigenous this year, if not one of the largest, uh, surely. And that they could send an important message and also, um, um, you know, showcase the, the city in, in such a wonderful light, you know, nationwide. And so um, they they have chosen to uh, pass a proclamation, and uh, it'll be read at the event Monday night. I'm hosting a variety of uh, Native American uh, performers, um, you know, uh, vocalists and flute players and drummers. And one of the groups that will be there is the People of the Star Orchestra that has been nominated for six um, Native American Music Awards. And uh, Sarah Elizabeth Berkey will be there, and she's a uh, recording artist and uh, vocalist, guitarist, and she's performed in 19 countries and the United States. 
And um, I think it will be well-received. It's going to be at 4th Street Live in Louisville. Um, and it's free of charge. It's a fun family event that's appropriate for, uh, uh, you know, family members of all ages. And um, it's, a good ta- it's a good chance to teach your children about uh, uh, Native American music and, um, um, and dress and, and culture. And um, like I say, it's it's free, free of charge, and we're going to be there from six until nine p.m. Um, Monday night on Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day. I guess I was wondering if you, if there's more you could say about um, some of the the rich Indigenous history in Kentucky that you mentioned. Um, you talked about the the misconception that. Kentucky was only hunting grounds. And I think, you know, I grew up in West Virginia and they, they told me the same thing in, in school there. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about sort of some of the some of the indigenous communities that were and are still in the state of Kentucky. Well, um, you, you had the mound building culture, the ancient cultures of Kentucky, and um, uh, that's evident today in the Wycliffe Mound State Park. You can go there and, and actually see the mounds that still exist today and are preserved there for the public to see. And uh, and then you had uh, a fork of the Trail of Tears uh, uh, that uh, went through western Kentucky through Hopkinsville. And uh, so people can, um, um, you know, drive out to Hopkinsville I would recommend, especially during their uh, Trail of Tears powwow, and and also Hopkinsville was one of the cities that actually that actually signed the proclamation uh, this year, also. Um, and and then too, uh, a lot of people are not aware that uh, in 1775 there was a treaty signed called the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals, and it was between uh, the Transylvania Land Company and the Cherokees. The Cherokee leaders at that at that time, and it relinquished uh, uh, claims to Cher- Cherokee claims to land uh, what consists of uh, what is now most of present day Kentucky. So basically, you had a sale of what was most of the state as it is today, and that state uh, that sale uh, resulted in. Uh, a, a significant increase in settlement of Kentucky beyond the uh, Cumberland Mountains. And, uh, you know, the Boones came over and the Bryans and they, uh, a lot of other w- notable families uh, came over and settled. And it was basically the uh, opening of the gateway to the West, to Western settlement of, you know, the Western United States. And it happened right here in, in the uh, state of Kentucky. And um, that took place on March 17, 1775. And uh, it's uh, just, you know, uh, history like that, I think, is, is well worth our time to remember. And it's part of who we are as Kentuckians. Yeah, great. Well, um if listeners are interested in sort of this movement to try to get towns and cities across Kentucky to um, celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day, how could they go about getting more information or getting involved in some of this organizing work? 
Well, if you know someone on your city council or you know the mayor or other county officials that you believe uh, uh, would be an integral part of a discussion of getting a a proclamation um, passed, then uh, give me a call. Uh, My number is 606-303-1169. And you can also reach me by email. It's uh, Angela Arnett Garner. A-N-G-E-L-A-A-R-N-E-T-T-G-A-R-N-E-R at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook. If you know somebody that, uh, uh, if you know of a town that might be interested in being a part of this movement then uh, or an organization, either one or a county, then uh, just, um, you know, don't hesitate to uh, contact me, and we'll try to set up a time r- really soon. Uh, and, and this this movement doesn't stop after Columbus Day, after Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, you know, I'm, I started passing proclamations early in the year, as early as February of this year. So we'll, it doesn't matter. If you know someone, uh, then just don't hesitate to call me, and we'll um, we'll get down to your city or county. Great. Well, thank you so much for for finding the time to hop on the phone with me here, and uh, good luck with the event in Louisville. Well, thanks so much, and um, I appreciate you uh, having me on your show. From North Carolina to Iowa, West Virginia to California, Maine to New Mexico and beyond, dozens of cities celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day, as do the entire states of Minnesota, South Dakota, Alaska, and Vermont. In Kentucky, the following towns have passed proclamations recognizing Indigenous Peoples Day. Louisville, Springfield, Perryville, Berea, Richmond, Prestonsburg, London, Corbin, Livingston, Mount Vernon, Broadhead, Crab Orchard, Harrodsburg, Junction City, Lancaster, Hopkinsville, Taylorsville, Frankfurt, Somerset, Burnside, Russell Springs, Liberty, Science Hill, and Stanford, as well as Madison and Lincoln counties. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find them on our website at WMMT.org or download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio. Radio.